Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. I want to welcome everyone to today's episode where we want to walk you through some of the most relevant aspects to consider when approaching M&A deals from an immigration perspective. My name is Matt Groban. I am an immigration associate in our Morristown, New Jersey office. And joining me today is Brian Bumgardner, a shareholder in our Raleigh, North Carolina office. Whenever there's an M&A transaction, there are a variety of critical issues to consider. And unfortunately, very often immigration is one of the issues that should be considered, but is not. So it's important to understand the role that immigration may play in any M&A transaction. Today, we want to focus specifically on the impact of I-9s and visa status to give you a sense of the types of issues that you may confront. And thanks for queuing that up, Matt. And hi, everyone. It's Brian. Um, hope you guys are doing well. All right. So, so Matt, in terms of what we're going to cover here today, you know, we have temporary visas, we have green card processing, but why don't we start out with I-9 processing? So why don't we start by just saying, you know, give a definition. What is an I-9 used for? Give a little background there, and then we can go from there and talk about the impacts of a merger or acquisition in that context. Sure, Brian. So the employment eligibility verification requirements of the I-9 come out of the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. And it's this law which places the burden on employers to verify the identity of their workers and to confirm that they're authorized to work in the U.S. This is done through the Form I-9. Violations of Form I-9 can result in significant civil fines, and willful violations can even possibly support criminal charges. Let's say that we have uh, an employer, you know, the the employer part or all the companies being acquired by another company. They have a a group of employees, they've completed I-9s. Are there obligations that that the new company, let's just say the successor company, is going to have to satisfy? And, you know, what are are the options for that successory company in terms of how to handle, how to deal with those I-9s in that context? Absolutely, Brian. So there generally are going to be two options. Uh, The first option is going to be to re-I-9 everyone. And then the second option is going to be to assume the liabilities of all the previously completed I-9s. And when making that decision, there there are a couple factors to consider among others. You know, the first factor I would always look to is, does the acquired company have any history of prior I-9 audits? And if so, are there any violations? Then I would want to know, does the prior company have an electronic or manual system to conduct I-9 verification? If electronic, which system is it? Uh, Normally a good electronic system, the likelihood is that there are going to be fewer errors as opposed to a manual system. 
Another potential wrinkle to throw in now, which I think is particularly timely, is there have been certain I-9 flexibilities for remote verification since March of 2020. And ICE's remote policy is actually going to be expiring on July 31st of 2023, all required in-person physical inspections of identity and employment eligibility documents that were inspected remotely during this period of temporary flexibility will need to be completed by August 30th of 2023. So again, just another factor to consider. So thanks, Matt. Uh, yeah, really kind of like the um, option three, you might say, is really kind of a hybrid of the uh, the first two in the sense that do a little bit of an, uh, of a, an audit, see how the I-9s look, and then make decisions right there about, uh, you know, to go one or two, assume, or to read 9 every, everyone, I think. So so some good things to think about there. I tell you what, let's let's shift gears a little bit and jump into to temporary work visas. So non-immigrant visa statuses, work visas, um, you know, very common in, in mergers and acquisition scenarios, corporate restructuring. The company that's being impacted, the company that's being acquired, merged, et cetera, may have a workforce that does have some foreign nationals working for them, persons on visas in the United States. What we're going to focus on here today and really what, um, you know, what the, the podcast is about is about the, the employment-based visa context. So Matt, why don't we start out with probably what is the, the most common professional level work visa in the United States? Surprise, surprise, the H-1B. Uh, the H-1B for specialty occupation workers. So if we're in a situation where we have some type of corporate restructuring coming up, merger, acquisition, there's going to be uh, some kind of, of change in the corporate structure. What would an employer need to think about? What does an employer need to be aware of in those contexts? Can you walk us through those scenarios for us? When it comes to the H-1B visa, an employer really is going to have two options, and the timing is important. The first option is the employer can update the public access files uh, of the previous company's H-1B visa. Uh, And the second option is that the employer can file H-1B amendments for those employees uh, that would be joining the acquired company. Brian, would you mind just discussing those two options in a little more detail and when one option may make sense versus the other? Yeah, certainly, Matt. And, um, you know, you mentioned timing, and I think timing is certainly a, a big factor. And there's, uh, of the two options, updating a public access file, you know, the, the documentation showing compliance to Department of Labor regulations, um, you know, the LCA, where is the individual working, how much they can be paid, the required wage, agreeing to certain working conditions, treating me as similar to U.S. employees. Well, that public access file can be updated with a, a memo. It's, it's kind of the, the easier lift of the two. Uh, but timing is a consideration because in terms of these corporate restructurings, the, the regulations from the Department of Labor will say, well, the execution of the public access file update must be made and in place really before the time that the deal closes, before the time the person rolls over and becomes an employee. Let's just say of the successor company, rolls on to the employment of the successor company. If you miss that window, uh, the window is kind of closed, so to speak, and uh, you're not technically in compliance with regulation. So then at that point in time, the approach would really be filing H-1B amendments, letting the U.S. Immigration Service know, hey, there's been a change in corporate restructuring, uh, change in corporate structure, merger and acquisition. 
And then here's the situation, and we want to continue moving forward with this temporary visa sponsorship. Now, there are, uh, of the two options, the public access file updates, certainly the quickest, the easiest, but timing is an issue. If you look at the second option, the filing amendments, especially if you have a larger workforce, a larger number of H-1Bs, that can get pretty expensive pretty quickly because now you're talking about additional U.S. government filing fees, additional potentially attorney fees. Uh, so there are considerations there to think about. Uh, also, it's uh, somewhat like I-9s as well. If you assume the public access files, you assume all the responsibilities for the H-1Bs filed by the predecessor company. So if you want to clean sheet it, so to speak, and file your own, your new H-1B amendments to let the Immigration Service know here and now is the snapshot in time of the working conditions, the employment, the location, the salary of the H-1B workers impacted by this merger and acquisition, that could be a way to go. And again, at the same time, you can request an extension of the H-1B status if the employees have uh, extension of time remaining. So it benefits there. But again, the downside there is that it is more work. It is more expensive to do those amendments. So a lot of times companies may opt for the, the prior option to do the public access file updates because it's quicker and it's easier. But again, timing is concerned and the window will close on that option if you don't act quickly enough. So I'll tell you what, Matt, let's switch gears and go from the H-1B over to the TN. So, so the TN, uh, what used to be called the NAFTA Treaty, now it's the United States uh, Mexico Citizenship or Mexico Canada Agreement, sorry, uh, USMCA. Can, what can you tell us about uh, TN visas? And again, kind of in the context of some type of corporate restructuring, some type of MA uh, activity, what does an employer need to think about for employees in TN status? Yeah, so TN visa, um, I, th I think one of the biggest misconceptions about the TN visa is it's as broad as the H-1B visa. It's not, you know, when NAFTA, now USMCA was created, the TN visa is for specific categories. Uh, you know, an accountant with a degree in accounting, a software engineer with a degree in computer science. Um, so again, it, it's, it's a more narrow category for citizens of, of Canada and Mexico. Whereas uh, the H-1B um, has, a, has a couple different paths forward, the TN is pretty clear. Uh, in an acquisition, the new company must file new TN petitions, preferably prior to when the employer starts work at the new company. And if not, really in a reasonable time after, right you know, before close or right after. There are two ways to go about updating a TN visa. The first, uh, you know, as Brian touched base on before, filing uh, with the service center in the United States. Premium processing will likely be implicated, which is an extra $2,500, so employers should be aware there. The second is, you know, if it's an employee who travels frequently, whether that's to Canada, uh, whether that's to Mexico, a little easier to do it through Canada. That's the second way to update it. One thing employers may want to be aware of is if employees are going to travel, what is the policy in terms of who's going to pay for the travel and whether the company will be reimbursed? So again, I think that's TNs, Canada and Mexico. Brian, another category we see impacted uh, pretty significantly by M&A are L1 visa holders. And one of the reasons being is L1 visa holders are generally, not generally, are, are employees from the company abroad. And 
often tend to be managers or executives. Would you mind touching base on the L1 visa and the potential implications of an M&A transaction? Absolutely, Matt. So, you know, you're right about that. Sometimes the L1s can be high stakes visas, Um, high stakes in the sense that you referenced there. They they can be uh, executives, they can be managers inside the United States, they can be decision makers for the company, VIP employees. You can also have subject matter experts, uh, individuals who are, you know, who specialists in the United States, brought the United States to lead projects, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of times there are very valuable employees. And, you know, one unique aspect of the L1 visa, which is not, uh, you know, it's not requirement for TNs or for H1Bs or for a lot of other visa types, really any other visa type, is that you have to have this qualifying relationship to employment to the company within the family of companies outside the United States. So, so maybe state it a little bit differently, the employees in L1 status, they must have worked for a qualifying corporate organization for at least one year prior to coming to the United States within that three-year period of time prior to the transfer. And that, that qualifying relationship could be that the company outside the United States, which was the foreign employer, could have been a parent company, could have been an affiliate, could have been a subsidiary, could have been a branch office, but but that qualifying corporate relationship is an inherent requirement of the L1. So in the context of a corporate restructuring, mergers and acquisitions, the key question here is, well, is there still a qualifying corporate relationship in existence post-closing? And you notice that I didn't say, you know, the qualifying corporate relationship still in existence. And, and that's one of the, the more subtle aspects of the L1 visa in, in this context in the sense that uh, you don't necessarily have to have the same exact qualifying relationship. For example, if someone worked abroad for a company, uh, you know, maybe a subsidiary company in the United Kingdom for a year and they transfer to the United States and now they're working for the U.S. company and the U.S. company's purchased. Well, if the purchasing company does not, elects not to purchase also the U.K. company, it doesn't necessarily mean that the L1 visa you know, cannot be amended, cannot go forward. Uh, cannot be carried over and sponsored by the new company. Uh, But the new company must nonetheless be a qualifying multinational company in the sense that once the deal closes, that U.S. company, we'll just say the successor company in this this case, just for simplicity purposes, it has to have at least one foreign entity outside the United States, whether it's a parent company, affiliate company, subsidiary company, or branch office, where theoretically it could transfer this individual or individuals on L1 status outside the United States back to that foreign company if the employment were to be impacted by the United States. So there still has to be that common corporate relationship, a common corporate relationship where there's common ownership and control between the family and companies. So if you have a situation where it's a U.S. company acquiring uh, another company, but the U.S. company that's the acquiring successor company is not a multinational company, that could be problematic from the point of trying to amend and extend the L1 status. One other point here is that, uh, you know, how you handle these, well, a lot of the analysis might be case-by-case, case, uh, case-by-case case basis. It's probably, probably a common theme for us uh, for some of these visa docs. But for those situations, just kind of keep it simple, keep it high level. Generally speaking, what likely could be required would be an amendment petition filed with the Immigration Service, uh, you know, typically uh, just before or in most cases, probably within a quote unquote reasonable period of time after the close of the transaction, letting the Immigration Service know there's been some type of corporate restructuring. Here are the details. Here are the, the purchasing documents, the, you know, the corporate restructuring documents and showing that that qualifying, a qualifying relationship still is in existence. So uh, that, that's 
that's uh, something to to be aware of for L1 visas that is a little unique, uh, a bit different from most visa categories in terms of must having that qualifying foreign corporate relationship still in existence after the close of the deal. So I tell you what, Matt, let's look at the visa categories for students and really in particular, probably the most common uh, visa type for students, for, for you know, students, foreign students in the United States graduating, working for, for employers in the U.S., is going to be the F-1 visa. So if we're in the context of having an employee F-1 status, I mean, that could take a couple of different flavors. Uh, but if we are in that situation, we do have some type of corporate restructuring. What about those scenarios? What does an employer need to be aware of in terms of how corporate restructuring may impact the F-1 status and the ability to continue working for that employer? Yeah, thanks, Brian. And again, we, we touched base earlier on the H-1B visa being the most popular visa. And for the most part, the H-1B visa is really trying to attract uh, these students graduating from U.S. universities. And so first, let's go with CPT. Probably the least frequent way you're going to see F-1 students working. But CPT is unique in the sense that it is authorized by the school. So it's the work authorization is through the school, not by the government. Here's what's really important to remember about CPT and really for OPT as well, is it is absolutely critical that once the company gets wind of potential M&A activity, they have to determine who their F1 students are. CPT students must go back to their school DSO to secure an updated I-20 prior to starting work for the successor company. OPT students, a little simpler than CPT, but OPT students must report any material changes in work to their school DSO and will likely be issued a new I-20. Where you can really run into potential issues is when we move on to STEM OPT. Foreign students who have a degree in science, technology, engineering, or mathematics field of study are not only entitled to an initial, what will normally be 12 months of OPT, they are also entitled to an additional 24 months of OPT beyond that if their employer is registered and uses E-Verify. So imagine the situation where the student's currently working for, let's say, employer B, who uses E-Verify, and they're required by employer A, who does not use E-Verify. That is going to be a situation where the work authorization of those students will not be able to be transferred over to the successor company. If the successor company does have and uses E-Verify, the student must report, again, report any material changes to their school DSO, and the new company will need to fill out a training plan for the student. So again, lots to keep in mind with F1 students, especially when it comes to STEM, because the success rate in the H1B lottery is so low. You know, having that student for three years gives them several more opportunities to be selected as an H1B. So moving on, Brian, a visa category we don't see a ton are, are e-visas, but I remember, you know, you touch base on L-visas potentially being really sensitive, you know, managerial or executive employees. And we tend to see that a lot with e-visas as well. And so would you mind just touching base on the e-visa and, and some of the impacts that we see from M&A activity? 
You know, I think the name of the game here is, uh, you know, if, if there's an issue to look at for e-visas, we're really referring to to E1, E2, treaty trader, treaty investor visas, and that's that's changes in citizenship. And and when I say changes in citizenship, I don't, I don't mean uh, that the the foreign workers in the United States that they, they you know, become a citizen of another country. What I mean is change in citizenship, or really change in ultimate ownership of the companies themselves, because. In order to qualify for the EU visa, there has to be a, a treaty in place between the United States and the foreign, um, you know, foreign country, and the foreign employer has to be a citizen or a company coming from that country as well. So, for example, if you have a a company that's you know Japan, Japanese owned, and then they're doing business in the United States, they have employees in the United States, they're an E status. If there is a corporate restructuring and the U.S. entity is now purchased by, let's just say, a U.S. company, and the ultimate ownership transitions from Japanese to the uh, the United States, then the citizenship of the company has changed in that circumstance. And now we don't have a situation where we have a, a Japanese company as Japanese-owned when Japanese citizens in the United States. So that could sever the ability for the persons to continue working inside the United States in any status. Now, this, is, this becomes pretty important because a lot of times, like the L1, uh, the e-visa can be used for executives, high-level managers, uh, specialist employees inside the United States. So a lot of times they're VIP employees. And again, I think one of the common themes of, of the podcast here is, well, you know, learning about these things, red flagging them, spotting these issues as early as possible. And ideally on the front side before the acquisition really proceeds too far down the road is important because once the deal closes, the citizenship of the company changes. Uh, there may not be anything that you can do to amend these e-visas and extend these e-visas. Uh, there may not be other visa options available. So so these are ones that oftentimes are very, very sensitive because amending the e-visa and extending them or switching over to e-visas or e-visa to another type of visa, the options may be a bit on the limited side. So so be cautious with these. I tell you what, Matt, let's, uh, let's switch gears now. Let's go from temporary visas. Uh, we've been talking about the the temporary visa categories that are most common for, for our clients, a uh, common theme there is that they allow a person to remain inside the United States and generally speaking work for a temporary period of time that has some kind of finite duration. Now, if a company wants to sponsor someone for more permanent employment inside the United States, they'd, they'd start the green card process. And you know, the permanent residency process is just that, permanent residence, permanent employment inside the United States. Uh, if we look at the green card process, which can also be affected by corporate restructurings and mergers and acquisitions, we typically have three stages. Uh, we have a, a PERM labor certification with the Department of Labor. We have the middle stage, you know, the most common middle stage, the I-140 immigrant petition filed with the Immigration Service. And then finally, and again, case by case, uh, once the window for the green card opens and green card numbers are available, the individual and all family members that are with them uh, can file the I-485 application for the adjustment status, the application for the green card. So a lot of times when we have a situation where workforce is impacted by some type of corporate restructuring, individuals will be in various stages of the green card process. They may not have green card processing. They may be early stages with PERM. They may be in the middle. They may be in the final stages. So Matt, kind of queuing you up right there. Uh, why don't you start out by walking us through the perm and then go from there in terms of with an individual. If an employee is in a given stage, what are some general fundamentals that an employer needs to think about or maybe be aware of uh, in terms of how a corporate restructuring could impact that green card process or what actions might be required to, to continue that sponsorship? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. 
So I think as a preliminary matter, you'd mentioned uh, the, the critical analysis for e-visas with citizenship, whereas with green cards, it, it's successor and interest. It's does that acquiring company, um, in fact, qualify as a successor and in interest? And, and, and if they do, you know, just sort of walking through the three steps, uh, just real high level perm process is uh, once the company has recruited and demonstrated that there are no qualified U.S. workers in a local uh, labor market, you go ahead, you file the perm. Is that successor in interest? A company generally may allow the perm to remain pending during the transition. We'll sort of get to what happens next. If the perm has not been filed, um, it's going to take a really close analysis. Well, while there's certainly an argument can be made, you, c- you can move forward. Also really critical to remember, uh, there's a new perm processing form that just came into play, and it doesn't look like DOL has neatly outlined how to take care of the current situation. So just really important to remember, it's sort of the legal test, but also the practical test. So whereas uh, step one is filing that perm, step two is the employee proving that they're a qualified candidate. If the perm's approved and there's a successor in interest, generally you can go ahead and file an I-140. Again, uh, just remembering that nothing is guaranteed because a successor in interest determination can often be a complex analysis. But what if an employee already has an I-140 approved? Again, generally two options. The company either can file amended I-140 petitions for transferred employees at close or when the company gets ready to file the employee's green card applications. You know, the reason the timing here is so important is because if employees from certain countries started at the green card process today, you know, it's not impossible they wouldn't have their green cards for at least 10 to 15 years. Again, if there are new, it's, it's not impossible there could be, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred employees with approved I-140s, if not longer. Do you file at close or do you file when the employee is applying for a green card? The third step in this process is the actual green card application itself. And unlike steps one and two, it's an individual application. The guidance on the green card application, at least in one respect, uh, I think is pretty clear because it doesn't really change. And that is that if the employee has an approved I-140 and their green card application has been pending for at least 180 days, they generally may use the portability provisions as long as the role does not change. And so this is really no different if there were a corporate reorganization versus simply moving to a new employer. The more challenging calculus is where the I-140 has not been approved. And it's under these situations that employers may want to look very closely at potentially filing a successor and interest I-140. Yeah, and, and thanks, Matt. Thanks for that. Um, you know, in, in wrapping up here, we uh, we want to say thanks for joining us today. Uh, you know, hopefully you find this this guidance, this high level guidance, useful. You know, I think a couple of takeaways from today's podcast. Uh, you know, number one is that uh, a lot of this analysis is really case by case, fact specific. Um, you know, the the timing, the type of acquisition, the details involved, the foreign nationals visa statuses they're in, do they have green card processing going on? So there's there's not necessarily a, a one-size-fits-all uh, solution to these scenarios. Uh, but what we want to do today is really kind of highlight 
the issue so you can red flag, you can spot these, and then really trying to identify these as early as possible. Issue spotting and identifying this as early as possible is very important. I believe Matt mentioned this at the beginning that a lot of times we don't really find out or you know, a company may not necessarily think about corporate acquisitions and the impact on visa holders and really until the very end of the process or even after the deal is closed. Uh, so getting ahead of this is a good idea to do. Uh, but uh, what you want to do is assess, uh, you know, do you have foreign nationals that are in visas? If you do, what are the visa types? So they go to the green card process. Look at the impact. Look at the requirements for amending if there are options to amend. And then really go from there. But the earlier you get started, the better. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you find this helpful and uh, have a nice day. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.